One of the more interesting stories I heard from one of our members over the last 14 years here in Anderson uh, was of uh, the first teaching experience of uh, one of our members back in the 1970s. Uh, and uh, this uh, teacher, uh, this member of our church, was uh, teaching. Uh, she was uh, pretty much fresh out of college. And this, if you knew this person, and if I identified this person, you would know them as, as just this quintessential Southern belle. Just very gracious, very loving. And uh, they were put in a situation there in Lawrence County uh, teaching elementary school. And this teacher had a student that was stealing, stealing from other students and that kind of thing, and was caught. And uh, the teacher requested an uh, interview with or a consultation with the parent. And the teacher suspected there might be some stuff going on, so they had the principal with them. So it was the principal, this teacher, our church member, and the mother of this child. And the teacher said, we have a problem here, and I will use the name Johnny. Johnny is stealing. And it's a real problem because it's causing disruptions, there's trust issues and this kind of thing, and it's a violation of you know, what the church stands for. The mother looked at the teacher, began to use some very flavorful language, and said, of course he's stealing. I taught him how to. So our Southern Bell teacher was a little uh, confused. You taught your child to steal? And when I look at that story, I think it's just a great example of the conflict of the human conscience. That student was caught between two moralities. The morality of most of the culture and of the school that you are not supposed to steal. And if you steal, that should violate your conscience. And the morality of his mother who said, you need to steal. If he disobeyed his mother, he violates the, uh, the, the conscience towards his mother. If he disobeys the school, he violates his conscience towards the school. It's a difficult situation, really a dilemma to be a little child growing up in that. But we're sort of faced with those kind of questions, those sort of dilemmas all the time, aren't we? But there's a profound, a profound blessing in being a Christian. Because in many ways, we don't have to guess what's right or wrong. We have been given God's word, God's book that gives us the principles that inform our conscience. So as believers, we can agree with the psalmist in Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me. And lead me in the everlasting way. Today in our passage in 2 Corinthians as we journey through that amazing epistle. Uh, we're going to see the, 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 the power, the testimony of a clean conscience in the Apostle Paul. And what I'd like for us to do as we go through this, just these really short two verses today. I, I want us to, to really think about our conscience. And how important it is for us to be able to maintain a pure conscience for the sake of the kingdom. For our own well-being. And for the sake of all of those who are around us. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, in faith we turn to you. Recognizing that we are often confused in our conscience. And sometimes we just downright violate it. And sometimes we're oversensitive about our conscience. We confess sins we don't commit. We need your help. We need the help of the Holy Spirit that informs our conscience. Uses our conscience to help us to walk in holiness. Let us please you by learning how to have a good conscience. Let us go to school in the Apostle Paul. And through the power of the Holy Spirit, let us learn to be the example that he was. In Christ's name, amen.
Please do turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 1, and we're going to be looking at verses 12 through 14 this morning. And I will read the verses in its entirety, but we're going to break it up into three different sections. You'll have a home group help uh, insert uh, that you might find uh, of assistance to you. Uh, if For those of you at home who don't receive our emails, you're welcome to uh, contact the church office, and we can put you on the email list so that you can get these, uh, these weekly updates and you can get the the uh, order of worship and uh, the home group helps uh, inserts as well, but it might help you uh, to know that uh, we're going to break this down in three parts, the testimony of a clean conscience in verse uh, 12, and then the, uh, I'm sorry, two parts, then the power of a clean conscience in verses 13 through 14. But let me read the verse in its entirety, and then we'll take a look at what the Apostle Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, has to say to us today. For our proud confidence is this, the testimony of our conscience that in holiness and godly sincerity, not in fleshly wisdom, but in the grace of God, we have conducted ourselves in the world and especially towards you. For we write nothing else to you than what you read and understand. And I hope that you will understand until the end. Just as you also partially did understand us, that we are your reason to be proud as you are of ours in the day of our Lord Jesus. So we see here, first of all, testimony of, of a clean conscience here. And, and it's important for you to understand what's, what's Paul talking about here, what's going on. And remember, one of the, the disadvantages of an epistle is an, an epistle, Paul is often writing in response to something that's going on. So sometimes we have to sort of guess what's going on. Uh, and uh, the, the nice thing about Corinthians, we have the first letter and we have, know something about what was going on in that church. And we certainly know something about the culture at the time. But what's happened here is Paul, has, uh, he planted the church in Corinth, he went away, and the church has just not been right since he left. There have been conflicts, there have been people who have been uh, trying to usurp his power and his authority, and they've been trying to take the place of Paul by, by criticizing Paul. And one of the criticisms that they have here is that Paul's promised he would come visit us again, and he never came and visited us again. He broke his promise. You can't trust this guy. And we're kind of wondering about what he's writing and what he believes. Here's a guy that said he would come visit us. He had business. But I, false teacher, will tell you what to believe in the absence of Paul. This is what's going on here in the Corinthian church. So they, they misunderstood the reason why he couldn't visit. Uh, but Paul said he was coming to Corinth. He says this at the end of 1 Corinthians 16. And then he ended up, because of all the problems there, he ended up taking a brief, painful visit. And then he, then he sent him a harsh corrective letter, and then he thought he doesn't want to come and have another painful visit, so he wants them to repent before he comes back. And they're accusing him of, uh, of, of not caring, of, 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 not, of not keeping his promise. He was also in the process of taking a collection from the churches to take to the famine, for famine relief in Judea. And so probably some people are also accusing him of just being interested in the money. Okay, so he's, he's going through uh, all of these issues, so he's making a defense here of his own integrity, that he really is a man who is trustworthy and he's credible, and, and, and he's willing to stand on his conscience to be able to do that. Now, this kind of brings up one of the most difficult parts of being a Christian. I, I think of all the trials and tribulations we go through as Christians in ministry, one of the biggest challenges is being misunderstood. Has that ever happened to you? It's awful. You, you, you meant something good and it was interpreted as something bad and people were upset with you and you were trying to do the right thing and you go up to God and say, God, I was trying to do the right thing and it's turned out all this, you know, what's going on? And you get all confused and, and it hurts, it hurts. Well, this is what the Apostles Paul is dealing with, but the stakes are very high. 
You abandon Paul, you abandon Christ. If they reject the Apostle Paul, they reject the Apostle Paul's doctrine, and they will end up being just another human cult, like so many other cults that have come and go. So the future of the Corinthian church is at stake here, and it's important that they trust the Apostle Paul, that they realize that, uh, that, that there's no duplicity here, that he is intending to do what he's going to do. He's been prevented from doing these, and for their sake, in some ways, he has not actually come to, to visit here. So one of the, Paul, the statement that Paul wants to do is he wants to make his defense that he can be trusted because he is imitating Christ who is certainly worth our trust. But he uses this strange statement that makes us a little uncomfortable. He says here, for our proud confidence is this. Now, when we hear that word pride, it kind of it makes us uncomfortable, right? I mean, we think, oh, the pride. Why is Paul saying he's proud? You know, this is, this is awkward for us. We... Because pride is a sin, right? It's almost the root of all sins. It was the sin in the garden. It's the sin today, pride. But Paul clearly says here, his proud confidence is this. Or in your translation may say, our boasting is in this. And same thing, boasting is almost worse than pride, right? And we know this is from our, our, our conscience is informed by Scripture in this regard. James uh, 4 and First Peter 5 say this, God is opposed to the proud but gives grace to the humble. Paul himself in 1 Corinthians said in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, For consider your calling, brethren. There, there are not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble. But God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong. And the base things of the world and the despised God has chosen. The things that are not, that he might nullify the things they are. That no man should boast before the Lord. So that's true. We accept that as true, right? But one of the interesting things about Paul is Paul, in the majority of times when he's boasting, it's a, in a positive sense. So what's the difference? It's boasting for what the Lord has done. It's giving credit to God, not credit to humans. He's picking up on a theme that comes to us from Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 9. Thus says the Lord, let not a wise man boast of his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast of his might. Let not a rich man uh, <clears throat> boast of his riches. But let him who boasts boast of this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For I delight in these things, declares the Lord. I've got this little list of books that I want to write one day. And um, I've was, I was been just kind of thinking about this verse all week long. And, uh, and I came across this kind of interesting meme. And, uh, and memes are the, the art of the Gen Zers, right? And, and the meme says, uh, don't be so hard on yourself. Mount Everest is scattered with the bodies of the very motivated. And I was thinking about this verse, and I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about, I think my next book title, I, like, like not that I've written all these other books, next, but the next one on my book title list is going to be titled The Unremarkable. The Unremarkable. And because that's where most of us are. There's just not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble. Most of us are just pretty darn unremarkable. We're just kind of vanilla. Vanilla. Praise God. <laughs> because when an unremarkable person achieves something in ministry, he may be more likely to give credit to God. 
But I'm so unremarkable, I'll probably never get around to writing the book. Anyway, the t- uh, Paul continues here, the testimony of our conscience. So here he brings up this whole idea of conscience. Now, uh, it's important. Sometimes we think, okay, we, get, we don't need a conscience. We've got the Holy Spirit. Well, you do have the Holy Spirit if you're a believer, but you do need a conscience. The Holy Spirit works within that conscience, okay? Uh, so basically, the idea of conscience is, is, is the soul reflecting on itself. It's the, uh, the idea of knowing one's self here. The Webster's 1828 dictionary, I always check Webster's 1828 dictionary because it was the English dictionary before wokeism took over and political correctness took over and everything had to be cool and appropriate. Um, And uh, it tells you what the words actually mean. Uh, Conscience is the internal or self-knowledge or judgment of right and wrong or the faculty power principle within us which decides on the lawfulness or unlawfulness of our own actions and affections and instantly approves or condemns them. So, so a conscience is moral self-awareness. You don't even need a definition of a conscience, right? Every one of you got one. You know what it means, okay? Sometimes we are terribly insensitive to our conscience. Sometimes we're oversensitive to conscience. It kind of depends on some of your personality and your makeup and your experiences and that kind of thing. But one thing that's important here is that, that a conscience can be hardened, and it can be hardened by sin. Pharaoh may be one of the great examples of that. Uh, and, and it can be hardened by, by cultural norms that are unbiblical and yet accepted. It can be hardened by a number of different things. As one commentator says, a conscience is not infallible. It is possible the conscience may excuse one for that which God will not excuse. And conversely, it will equally possibly that a conscience may condemn a person for that which God allows. And can we be honest? We all have just major baggage in this area, don't we? You know, sometimes we're just overwhelmed by things and feel guilty by things God would allow, would permit, that he is not concerned about. And sometimes we're just flipping about things that God is really concerned about. We uh, were coming back from the Virginia mountains last week, and uh, we had opportunity to stop. If you can ever stop at a, any restaurant called Dutch... On the way back, uh, it's, a, it's probably a Mennonite uh, Amish-owned restaurant, and uh, it's, it's the stuff dreams are made of. <laughs> they, they can cook. <laughs> and uh, so we got uh, some amazing sandwich, and we're sitting out eating it. And the next table over were these Mennonite ladies, and they were uh, wearing the traditional very humble Mennonite garb with the head pieces and the very plain dresses and things like that. And, and it was so funny, it was, I was just kind of, a, you know, in some ways I admire that, in some ways it really burdens me because, um, uh, well, I think the intentions of that are good. It's, it's to not be noticed, it's to be marked as a particular kind of people and things like that. Uh, the, the, it really can quickly go into legalism, can it? And, and I thought about those women, I thought, if they didn't wear that outfit, their conscience would bother them. And yet God would, would have say nothing about that. There'd be no sin involved there. Yet their conscience, because they grew up in a culture that insists that women dress that way and that kind of thing. Well, we all have those, that kind of baggage, don't we? We all have the things that we think are, thus saith the Lord's, and they're actually just saith my daddy or my mama or my school or my, what, my buddies or whatever. Well, it's the reason why you ought to study your conscience. The reason why, you know, we've got this. Hebrews gives us a sense uh, here, a, a freeing of the conscience and, and, and a binding of the conscience in some ways, uh, where uh, the author of Hebrews says that, that uh, the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God and will cleanse the conscience from dead works to serve the living God. 
And the result is, that's Hebrews 8, uh, 9, uh, 14. The result is that we have hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, Hebrews 10, 22. Wow. Now, how do you have your heart sprinkled from an evil conscience when your conscience is, is maybe bringing up things that are, that are not necessarily unlawful? Well, you inform it by the word of God. You inform it by the word of God. We are a Christ-reformed church. We're a church that was, in a sense, birthed in the book of Acts and then rediscovered uh, in, the, in the Reformation. And that's really was one of the key things of the Reformation, is that it was, it was making people c- clean in their conscience. They understand that they're under grace, not law. The burden, the burden of growing up in a legalistic situation where you think the next failure could cause you to lose your salvation is immense. And then the idea that you're going to somehow fix that through some sort of ceremony is just bogus. So we go back to the word. And what does the word say? The word says you can have a clean conscience. Paul had one. And he's appealing to it. So what we want to do is accept what God has done in terms of his cleansing. And then add to that obedience that helps us to see that cleansing come through in, in our lives. This is one of the problems with the self-esteem movement. The self-esteem movement thinks that guilt and sin are, are psychological. And, and they're not going to the root cause. And you've got to go to the root cause to get cleansed from an evil conscience. Just saying that, you're, that, you're, that, that uh, you deserve an A when you really deserve an F is not going to help anybody. But the conscience is very important. It, it's sort of like when I was... Uh, in high school, someone had gifted me some pilot lessons, like airplane pilot lessons. Like, I mean, like I was 16, and you're trusting me with a flammable aircraft. And, and they didn't because they had somebody with me. But anyway, I had these pilot lessons. And one of the things they do, like lesson one, if any of you have ever taken pilot, there, there's something called a stall warning. Does anybody know what a stall warning is? Right, when an airplane goes up and the angle is too steep, it gets to a point where the air will not fall, go under... Uh, under the, uh, the wings correctly and will not give you the lift that you need and you will stall out. And it's really pretty remarkable. But before you stall out, the wonderful engineers of aerodynamics have figured out how to do a stall warning. So you're, he's taking you up and you're, you, and you're stalling out and all of a sudden you hear this beep, 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 beep. And then it continues, beep. And of course the panic sets in at that point in time. You're like, we're going to kind of make this airplane fly again. And then the airplane stalls, do, 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 do. By the way, sound effects are biblical. No, uh, uh, it starts slowing out, and the, air, the propeller starts slowing down, and that plane starts to crash. All you got to do is push it forward again, and you used to go up again. But we just did all these stall, beep, beep. That's your conscience. That's your conscience. That's your conscience. It's God's stall warning. You're about to go into a nosedive morally. Pull up before it's too late. It's very helpful. All people have a conscience. You don't have to be a Christian to have one. Uh, Romans 2, Paul talks about this in verse 14. When Gentiles do, uh, do not have the law, do instinctively the things of the law. There's an instinct there. These not having the law are also laws to themselves. Their conscience either affirms right behavior or condemns sinful behavior. So as Paul is defending himself, he's saying that he had this conscience, that they behave themselves in holiness and godly sincerity. That word sincere is, has a beautiful meaning. Um, uh, bad merchants uh, during the Greco-Roman period of time would sometimes try to pawn off a cracked pot. And uh, the, 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 the vase or whatever they're trying to sell would have some cracks in it, and they would fill in the cracks with wax. 
so that it looked like it was whole. You get it home, you put something in it, and it falls all apart. And they didn't have Amazon's return policy back then. Uh, and, you know, you'd be all upset and everything. So what people who were buying uh, earthenware learned to do is they would take the pot and they would put it up to the sunlight. And that's what sincere means, without wax. You take it up to the sun and you see if the cracks are in there have been filled in with wax. And when you see that they're not, you know that it's a good pot. It's a genuine pot. That's what sincerity means. And folks, your roommates, your family members, your church members, your friends in your community, they ought to be able to hold you up to the sun and see if you're full of cracks or not. And if you got cracks, by the way, we all do, you don't fill them with wax, you repent from them. And God will make you whole. But it's a godly sincerity. The, 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 the sincerity comes from God. God is the object and he's the source. And he makes a contrast here, not in fleshly wisdom. This was really important in Greek culture. Because you literally had philosophers and sophists going around from time to time making money, doing speeches. And a sophist is extremely skilled on being able to argue both sides of the matter. That's a good skill for a lawyer. It's a bad skill for a preacher. A real bad skill for a preacher. And they're so used to, the, the, the Corinthians are so used to these sophists coming by, and the philosophers coming by, and, and charging money for their speech. and They're just lumping Paul in that same category. And Paul says, we're not like this. This is not fleshly wisdom. We're not playing both sides here. We teach the word of God. He told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, For the wisdom of the world is foolishness before God. For it was written, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasons of the wise, that they are useless. So then let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you. In 2 Corinthians 2, he's about to say, uh, as we go through this passage, We are not like many peddling the word of God, but as from sincerity, but as from God, we speak in Christ in the sight of God. He was, Paul was not a con man. He was not a huckster. But, you know, we're still having to say that, aren't we? Regrettably, many people's exposures to quote-unquote Christianity is the clowns on television, the name-it-claim-it folks, the prosperity theology folks, the folks that will send you a, a prayer rag that's been prayed over just for $25 this month. A prayer rag? <laughs> It's been prayed over? Well, yeah, Peter did that. Yeah, Peter did that. And he didn't charge for it. And they live in these mansions, and they fly these Learjets, and they've got the $400 haircut. How could you spend $400 on a haircut? Anyway, and, and, and they, they cause a credibility problem for the rest of us when we're trying to be sincerity, sincere, right? Wax-free. Well, Paul's saying he's not like those. I'm saying we are not like those. And he gives this qualifier, but, but in the grace of God, we speak in the grace of God. You know, let, let, this go, let this go home with your conscience. Paul had no skeletons in his closet. The apostle Paul had no skeletons in his closet. He could stand up before the Corinthians and say, be like me, be like me. And you know, you can smell a fraud a lot of times, right? You can, you can feel a hypocrite. Paul was no hypocrite. He was no fraud. He could say, I have no skeletons in his closet. Do you ever read the book of Acts? Do you ever remember the stoning of Stephen? Remember what Paul was up to when he got saved? If there was ever anybody that had skeletons in their closet, it's the Apostle Paul. Y'all, that's grace. That's grace. If you're a Christian, 
the things you've done in the past have been nailed to the cross. Even those of us who were the most guilty sinners before coming to Christ can have a clean conscience and walk forward in the holiness of God. That is grace. Why would you, why would you exchange that love that God has given you, that grace for keeping a bunch of rules and trying to prove how wonderful you are by keeping all these rules? He's conducted himself in the world and especially towards you. He is above reproach. Above reproach is one of the qualifiers of being a church officer. Frankly, it's a, one of the qualifiers of being you, of being a, a Christian. Now, does above reproach mean perfect? I'm looking at, at a, a, a gallery of imperfect people. I say that kind of metaphorically, but also I know a bunch of you. <laughs> and by the way, you're looking at a very imperfect pastor, right? Does it mean you're perfect? No, it means... Your trajectory, your lifestyle in general, the, your pattern of behavior is a good Christian pattern. You're not sinless, but you hate sin. And you, you hate your sin more than anybody else's sin. Right? And he says, especially towards you. In other words, he's going, he's saying, listen, Corinthians, you of all people would know how we behaved. No one can accuse me of anything legitimate. They always accuse me of these things when I'm out of town. And they make up all these accusations. He said something similar to the Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 2. You were witnesses, and so is God, how devoutly and uprightly and blameless we, we behave towards you believers. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring each of you as a father would his own children, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. You don't want anybody to be a bad Christian because of your example or not come to Christ because of your example. And if you have failed in that area, you go to that person, and you ask their forgiveness. He's contrasting this with the evilness of Corinth. I mean, I mean, if anybody's morality should have shined out, it would have been Paul's in Corinth. Corinth was a cesspool of morality. Even within the Roman Empire, I mean, the Romans killed people for fun. The temples had prostitutes in them, like sanctioned religious prostitutes. And yet Corinth was looked down on in the rest of the Roman world as an immoral place. Paul walks in there in the shining glory of Christ in a transformed life. They should have been able to see this, but the devil's always trying to divide. So Paul lived in the power of a clean conscience. And that's where I want to go now with verses 13 through 14. He says, he says and this is more brief, but he says, uh, for I write nothing else to you than what you've read already. He's being consistent. Don't look for a change now. You can go back. You can read 1 Corinthians. You can read the letters that are lost to us. Paul is consistent in what he's saying. Now, he's not being flippant. He's not being cowardly. He is not being political. He is being consistent here. And I hope that you will understand until the end. It's just time to settle all this, is what he's saying. He said, I'm, I'm kind of done with all this conflict. It's been painful for you. It's been painful for me. It's time to grow up. <laughs> it's time to grow up and, and to quit all this, uh, this backbiting and that kind of thing. Just as you partially did understand us. In other words, he wants them to go back. At one point in time, they did possess us. When Paul was there in Corinth for a year and a half, they got it. But these drama queens came in and ruined everything. Has this ever happened to your place of work? 
you know, you can have uh, this harmonious, wonderful relationship, 15, 20, 30 people working together. Everybody's happy like the little dwarves in Snow White, you know, just whistling. And you get one drama queen in there, and drama queen can be a male, and they will ruin everything. Well, you know, I wonder why he didn't give us this. I wonder why they didn't do that. How come, how come, why is this doing this? I wonder if he's making more money than he thinks he's making. They just ruin everything. So you had these drama queens that were coming in. He's like, fire the drama queens. Go back to what we learned before. And notice this. Wouldn't, don't, this is what you want to be able to say in humility, boasting on God, but you want to be able to say this, that we are your reason to be proud we are your reason to be proud. Paul, Timothy, Silas, we are your reason. Uh, Aquila, Priscilla, we're your reason to be proud. Those who brought this gospel to you are your reason to be proud. Now, you can only say that kind of thing in the power of a clean conscience. 1 Corinthians 4.16, he said, I exhort you, therefore, to be imitators of me. 1 Corinthians 11.1, 1, be imitators of me, just as I am of Christ. You can't say that if you're walking around with a guilty conscience all the time. There was no duplicity in Paul, and there should not be in us either. We all need to be sincere. You ought to be able to hold us up to the sun, and then we're living a life of holiness, a life of purity. We're actually doing the things that we say ought to be done. God has called you to walk in obedience, to walk in purity, to walk in holiness, to walk in love. To carry out the desires of the spirit, not the desires of the flesh. It's more, there's much more to that than you just having a good day. <laughs> there's a ministry, there's a great commission here at stake here. And that's what Paul's saying. And again, if they left Paul, they're going to leave the church. The church of Corinth will be closed down. How many churches have closed down because of the ill behavior of the members or of the staff? And there's a little accountability here that's important to keep in mind, too. And he goes on and says, as you are ours. So he's saying, I'm proud of you, too. He's proud of that messed up church. Why? Because they're the bride of Christ. Well, they're a mess, and they're the bride of Christ. Well, they're a mess, and they're the bride of Christ. Christ died for them. So I'm not going to look down on them. And then he says, close here, in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, what's that? What's the day of our Lord Jesus Christ? Well, it's when Christ comes back. I, I, you seldom hear this, it seems to me, being preached. But there's, when Christ comes back, there's going to be kind of two judgments. There's going to be one for those who don't know Christ, and they'll be judged for eternal punishment. But for the believer, there's going to be a judgment, and it seems to me it's going to be a judgment for rewards. How did you spend the 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80, 90 years you had here on planet Earth. How did you spend it? You got the parable of the, of, of the talents, right? The, the ruler gives talents to, the, to uh, his servants and one buries it in the ground. How many Christians are burying their talent in the ground? But Paul, Paul is constantly reminding us of this. In the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. He had previously told the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 4, I am, not conscious of, I am conscious of nothing against myself, yet I am not by this acquitted, but the one who examines me is the Lord. Therefore, do not go on passing judgment for the time, but wait until the Lord comes, wait until the Lord comes, who will both bring to light the things hidden in the darkness and disclose the, mo disclose, disclose the motives of men's hearts. And then each man's praise will come to him from God. 
Now, I want you to, that's a real important verse. What's God going to expose? What's Jesus going to expose when he comes back? Is he going to expose how much money you gave to the church? Is he going to expose how, how talented you were? What an amazing preacher you were? The quality of your Bible stars? No. You know what he's going to expose? Motives. Motives. I got to tell you, for, for the unremarkable, <laughs> that's a real motivator. Think about this. Jesus said this, that you will get a reward if you give a cup of cold water to the least of these. A cup of cold water. That's something they could have gotten themselves. It's not the thing, the item that you're giving, donating. It's the motive. If you give a cup of cold water because of a motive of service, God's going to give you a reward. It's motive. Good motive can only come through humility. And if you have got that humility and you're walking with a clean conscience, you can walk as an example. And when the Lord comes back, you can embrace him. You're not going to shrink back. You're not going to be embarrassed. Because as, as unremarkable as many of us are, we can have good motives. We really can. If a cup of cold water is enough to get a reward, how much more is being here this morning, attending Bible studies, tithing, volunteering? A clear conscience is essential for a Christian. First Timothy 1.5. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. First Timothy 3.8-9. Deacons must be uh, holding to the mystery of faith with a clear conscience. Second Timothy 1.3. I thank God whom I serve with a clear conscience the way my fathers did. Acts 24.16. Paul before Felix. I also do my best to maintain always a blameless conscience both before God, before men. You've got to win the battle on the inside before you can win the battle on the outside. And folks, you're crazy if you don't think we're at war. And we, 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 we grieve at the culture, and yet sometimes the church is no better. So I would encourage you to do everything you can to have a clean conscience for that. You confess your sins, you seek to forget, for, for, forsake them, and when you commit them again, you confess them and you forsake. And you do what you can to forsake them. But it's not enough just to be concerned about sin. How are you serving others? Are you giving them a cup of cold water? Are your motives good? The author of Amazing Grace, John Newton, is one of my favorites. It's the first song I learned to play on the bagpipes. Because it's the easiest song to play on the bagpipes. That's grace, isn't it? <laughs> so Newton wrote this. And of course, if you know his testimony, he was literally a slaver. I mean, he would... Go to Africa, get slaves, and sell them. And uh, he was a rough sailor guy, you know. Got saved. Various accounts uh, talk about how he got saved. But he says this towards the end of his life. I am not what I ought to be. Oh, how imperfect and deficient. I am not what I wish to be. I abhor what is evil, and I would cling to what is good. I am not what I hope to be. Soon, soon, I shall put off mortality, and with mortality all sin and imperfection. Yet, though I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor what I hope to be, I can truly say, I am not what I once was, a slave to sin and Satan, and I can hardly join with apostle and acknowledge by 
the grace of God, I am what I am. Go to school in the Proverbs and obey this proverb while ignoring the example of its author, its human author. Proverbs 4.23. Watch over your heart with all diligence, for from it flow the springs of life. Let us be a people with a clean conscience. Father, in faith we turn to you and we bless you for the, the, the hard parts of Scripture. Lord, we all, I fail in this. Anybody knowing me knows I fail in this. We all fail in this. But Lord, one of the, one of the things about a Christian is they, they really do want to please you because we really do love you. And we're so grateful for the salvation that comes through Jesus Christ. Would, would you help us to have the life that could, that could stand the scrutiny of men and women where we would be able to, in humility, point to what Christ has done in our lives and say to people, be like me. Be like me. I don't know that we're there yet, God. I don't know that we're there as a church. I don't think I'm there as an individual. But we have hope, and we believe in sanctification, and we believe, like John Newton, while we're not what we hope to be, we are certainly not what we were. Would you just work in some wonderful way to give us the power of a clean conscience? All of us. In Christ's name, amen.